Who has never seen or read Harry Potter? All right, we'll see you next week. See you in six weeks when the series is over. (laughs) You are not required to know anything about the movies or the books. We are simply going to use those stories as a lens to see some themes like love and uh, suffering and pain and belonging, things like that. Harry Potter books came out in 1997 in the UK, and it's kind of become this classic fantasy story of witches and wizards and magic, uh, good versus evil. Since 97, there have been 500 million books sold in 80 different languages. And not everyone has been a fan of the books. In 1997, it actually topped the American Library Association's list of banned books. And it stayed almost at the top of that list for 10 years because people believe that Harry Potter was teaching our kids witchcraft and sorcery. And here's a cartoon that came from uh, some, it's kind of blurry, but the religious conservatives, especially in the Christian world in the U.S., put out some propaganda to try to keep families from letting their kids read the books. Said, A cartoon that says, they led us into stuff we found in the Harry Potter books, tarot cards, Ouija boards, crystal balls. Samantha, the Potter books open a doorway that will put untold millions of kids into hell. Uncle Bob, you don't know the half of it. Holly's dad is a preacher and he likes the Harry Potter stories. (gasps) Hey, what about all the occultic junk in my room? Should I destroy it? Absolutely, says Uncle Bob. This <laughs> is so weird. This <laughs> is so weird and awkward. Did anyone seriously read that and think, oh my gosh, I can't let my kids read Harry Potter? There have been at least six book burnings of the Harry Potter books in the United States. Christianity Today, in a 2007 article, compared the books to rat poison mixed with orange soda. We are taking something deadly from our world, the idea of witchcraft, and turning it into what some are calling merely a literary device that is poison for our children. When the Today Show host Katie Couric asked author J.K. Rowling about those accusations that Harry Potter was going to lure kids to Satanism, she flatly denied it. She actually admitted that she was a Christian herself. She said this in response, people tend to find in books what they looked to Chronicles of Narnia series said the same thing much longer ago. As we know, almost anything can be read into any book if you are determined enough. He found in the books that he wrote, people were reading into them things that he had never even thought of. And he actually said after this, some people read some things into the books that I wish I would have come up with myself because they were pretty good. We look at books and stories and we read into them whatever we want to find. We do this with fiction books. We do this with the Bible a lot. We read these stories um, looking for something already rather than seeing what's already there. So C.S. Lewis says that's just kind of the nature of stories. We see what we want to see. So how do we understand these stories? 
Harry Potter is a fantasy story, and the definition of fantasy could be the activity of imagining things. So if fantasy is the activity of imagining things, and God, we understand, is the creator of our world, and all of our universe, all of creation began in the mind of God, began in the imagination of God. And if that's true, then in some ways our world, our universe, is a fantasy world because it began as an activity in the imagination of God. So just like anyone who has this idea in their mind of a painting or an artwork or a new product or a business idea or a story for a book, it begins in our imagination. So fantasy stories are kind of being able to see inside of someone's imagination. And I think, I love the idea, if that is true, then our world is a fantasy world that began in the imagination of our Creator God. J.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings series. He said, fantasy remains a human right. We make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made, and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. This means he says that we create things, we make things because we are made by a creator, and we are made in that creator's image. So because God is one who creates things, he makes stuff, he created us to do the same. It is a natural thing for us to create. It's a natural thing for Kate to be drawing on her iPad during sermons. It's a beautiful, sacred thing to be able to make and create. She, okay, I should say <laughs> that she does it while she listens. She's not doing it because she's bored, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a natural, holy, sacred thing for us to do what God does to create. So Lewis and Tolkien both speak of these fairy tales and, and uh, fantasy stories as a sub-creation. If all of this is creation, then what we make, these stories, is a sub-creation. And within these stories, within our reality, we learn more about who we are and ourselves, our relationship to one another, our relationship to the world, our place in the world, our relationship to God. We find all of those things in the stories that we tell, the things that we create, and stories of the power to teach us who we are, to teach us those things. If you gather a group of 12-year-old boys and you begin to lecture them about the importance of honor and duty and self-control and friendship and perseverance, their eyes are going to glaze over and they're going to fall asleep. My eyes would glaze over and fall asleep. But instead, if you took a group of kids and you began to lecture them with a lesson that started, there once was a creature named a hobbit and he had hairy feet. And his name was Frodo. And he had this magic ring. And whenever he put this magic ring on, he would disappear. And this dark power would take hold of him. That's a little bit more compelling than just an hour lecture about how important it is to persevere and have honor. Stories have a way of kind of inspiring us and waking us up to some deep truths. People have said that stories in the Bible are more like fairy tales and fantasy than reality. And I get that. Stories of God creating the universe in six days. Stories of a worldwide flood and an ark 
and one family that survived and put two of every single kind of animal on it. It sounds more like a children's story than it does some literal history. The story of Jonah and the whale, or Jonah swallowed by a giant fish and then vomited back up on land. It doesn't sound like a true story, right? It sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like fantasy. In some ways, some of those stories, in my understanding, may be based on what we call myths. C.S. Lewis, when he was alive, was a worldwide expert on myth. He said that myth, they are stories that we tell that help us know who we are and our place in the world and help us make sense of reality. The message and the meaning and the purpose of a myth is not to ask, did this actually happen this way? And to stop at that means you are missing the big T truth of the story, of the purpose of that story and the power of that story and how it was intended. You take the creation story, for example. The creation story, we see a lot of similarities from that Genesis story to an old uh, Babylonian poem called the Epic of Gilgamesh that came out, oh gosh, uh, some scholars think around a thousand years, and it has a lot of similar ideas and similar themes as the Genesis story. So scholars began to ask, why are there some similarities and connections? Is it possible that the writers of this Genesis story used some similar ideas that were going around that had been around for centuries? So if that's true, And this epic of Gilgamesh is this really weird story about these gods who are dysfunctional and angry and chaotic, and they are ripping each other's bodies apart in this cosmic battle and warfare and shooting arrows into the mouths of these gods to kill them and then taking that god's dead body and ripping it apart and putting one half above to create the sky and one half below to create the land. What? It's weird. It's crazy. Well, we, we read that story and we think that did not happen. But we read Genesis and think that did happen. Well, maybe this Genesis story isn't there to tell us exactly what happened and how it happened. Maybe it's not to be read as a history book the way that we've understood. So what were they trying to say? What were the writers of Genesis trying to say to their audience? What were they trying to communicate? They discovered that perhaps the writers of Genesis were trying to say that the world, the universe, was not made out of chaos and dysfunctional gods. The Genesis narrative says the world was made from one source, and that source, that God, was good, and that God took chaos and brought order and beauty out of it. And God created human beings and said that we were good and told us to also go and create. That is a very beautiful, powerful story of our role in this world and our worth that goes so much beyond. Genesis says the world was made in six 24-hour days. And if you don't believe that, then you can't believe anything else in the Bible. You've got to throw Jesus away. It's all meaningless. 
there are several ways to understand some of these biblical stories. There's literal, historical, allegorical, moral, symbolic, eschatological, which is end time stuff, primordial, which goes back to the beginning, early stuff, all these ways to understand the biblical stories. In my tradition of Christianity, uh, the starting point of these stories was to remember that they are literal and they are historical. And then you can get into the other stuff. But you've got to start that they are literal and they are historical. If these are all the ways of understanding a story, let's think of um, those as senses. So the way that we experience our reality is through our at least five senses. What are they? Sight? Smell? Taste? Touch? hearing. Some say there's a sixth sense, which is the ability to see dead people. No, I'm just kidding. It's not true. Imagine, picture in your mind the childhood food that you grew up with that makes you think of fall. It's pumpkin pie, pecan pie, hot apple cider, whatever that is. Picture that in your mind. And stop there and just look at it. Can you really experience that piece of apple pie and know what it's like just by looking at it and seeing what it looks like? Stopping at the literal historical level of these stories, whether we're talking about the Bible stories or stories that kind of have impacted our world and our society, if you stop there, you don't really experience what those story is even about. You can't grasp, just like you can't grasp what an apple pie tastes like and is like just by looking at it. You have to taste it. You have to touch it. You have to smell it. And so by focusing on this literal historical level of these stories, I think we have just completely missed out on the meaning of these stories. And if we're looking at a pool of water of these stories, literal historical interpretation, in my opinion, is the shallowest understanding of the stories that you can get. Shallowest understanding. Completely missing the picture of why these people found these stories important to write down and share. Because stories are so powerful, I, I think... Maybe this is why Jesus mainly taught people using stories. In Matthew 13, oh, I have a picture of apple pie. Isn't that like delicious? Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. And he did not say anything to them without using a parable, without using a story. A parable was not a true story. A parable was a made-up story. It's a fiction. It's a fantasy. It's an illustration. It was a way of explaining a deeper meaning and a deeper truth. And Jesus, when he really wanted people to absorb something and try to understand something and, and try to find themselves in the story, he did not just tell them flat out in a lecture. He gave them words and pictures and images through stories. Richard Rohr, Franciscan priest, said the indirect, metaphorical, symbolic language of a story or parable seems to be 
Jesus' preferred way of teaching spiritual realities. And I think the nature of those stories, like Harry Potter, have a profound, deep way of teaching us spiritual realities. So that's what we're going to do in this series. Perhaps Jesus knew that these metaphors are the best way to explain these deep truths of life and who we are. The great storytellers throughout our history, Tolkien's and the, the J.K. Rowling's and our favorite TV shows and movies and art, um, they have more impact on our day-to-day lives than politicians do. Because these stories and this art, they inspire us. When we experience stories, they help us see the world and ourselves in a new way. Politicians aren't very good at doing that. Me as a preacher is not very good at doing that sometimes. Stories is where deep truth is felt and experienced and understood. We need stories to help us understand ourselves. Sometimes it's not until we see something in the form of a story with characters and drama and pain and suffering and uh, perseverance and hope and love. We see the characters go through these ups and downs of horrible things and then finding their way out. Sometimes it's only by seeing that through someone else in a story that we find that in ourselves and we can begin to process our own pain and our own suffering and our own uh, troubles in life. And we begin to see glimpses of hope and ways to get through those things. And we can do that through the power of story. In 1852, Harriet Beecher is an abolitionist. She wrote a novel, a fiction novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And some say it helped lay the groundwork for the abolitionist movements. There's an author and novelist, Roxana Robinson. She said, Uncle Tom's Cabin told the story of slavery through the eyes of the enslaved and was one of the first novels to show black characters as fathers and mothers, parents and children, human beings who are living under inhuman conditions. It was not somebody lecturing people on the importance of the abolitionist movement that made change. It was the story that showed African-American slaves as human beings who shared the same feelings and emotions and pain we all do. It was the power of story that did that, not the lecture. Stories have the power to change our world. If I want us to look at the stories in our lives and the stories that we experience on TV, books, movies, stories we tell ourselves and see that God is in those stories, that those stories are sacred. Sacred stories don't just happen in a leather-bound book that we call a Bible. Sacred stories happen all around us. Sacred stories happen from our imagination that we put down on paper, create. And they have a lot of depth and power and truth, and we need them. We need stories to remind us of injustices in this world. Stories like Uncle Tom's Cabin helped people realize how they are a part of causing those injustices. So we're going to look at some stories, not just in the Harry Potter series, but this is why I love topical teaching, because I love finding the sacred 
and things that we've been told are not sacred necessarily. So we're going to do that. Before we take communion, it's um, to kind of get us in a space to uh, receive communion and, and receive and uh, recognize God's presence in us. I've asked Kevin to lead us in kind of a contemplative prayer, a contemplative moment.